Let me introduce our speaker today. But I, so to comment, I like to write and speak and think about uh, and read and study many of the same things that uh, Dr. Dennison is fascinated by. Um, and he won't probably remember this. I was in a time of relative kind of hopelessness about the power of the gospel in our culture, um, probably maybe eight years ago or so when I first met Jim at a staff retreat. <clears throat> he, was a, he is a good friend to and was the former boss of our own Pike Weisner. And so we had a round table with him uh, back at the church where Pike had been, and Jim taught us about the Great Awakenings. Historically, and then maybe more powerfully that day, about the current one that's sweeping the East, um, the Far East and, and even into the Middle East. Now, the West is being largely left out of that right now, but, but it gave me such hope. My hope was restored in that conversation. Um, I am more passionate about preparing a church to face a dominant cultural worldview that has no ethic for tolerance and no ethic for dignity for anyone who disagrees with it. And that's what we're facing. Um, and because of Jim, that began to fill my heart with a sense of hope, not just a sense of, of, of slow defeat, which is how it was beginning to feel to me in the West. Since then, we as a church have taught through Daniel and Peter's letter to help prepare us for this. So much of this urgency was kindled in that simple conversation. Now, of course, my son Mark is on Jim's staff, and much more importantly, Ryan and Candace and the gravitational pull of grandkids gives us sufficient draw to get Jim here to talk about his work that has continued to grow in these areas um, as another help for us as we seek to be prepared to be a suffer-ready, gospel-proclaiming church, even in pressure. Um, what a great way for us to celebrate five years. I was telling my wife, who grew up in the Bible church, that it's actually a little bit of a tradition in Baptist churches to have somebody other than the lead pastor speak on anniversaries. I don't know where that comes from, but it's really common. Um, so it was really cool that Jim was available today. And as Jim is the shepherd, you know Jim is the shepherd of the Denison Forum. Um, the, he's a leader, an author, a speaker. You know about the daily article. I reference it in sermons regularly, his daily podcast. Uh, but you may not know about the newest book. Oops, I didn't bring it up here with me. Let me grab it. There we go. I went and got it and then left it off the stage. Um, but you may not know about his newest book. Um, he had no idea I was going to bring it up here, by the way. Uh, the Coming Tsunami. It isn't available officially till the 25th, right? As I understand it. But he graciously brought a few pre-release copies for us. And so I was going to tell you, this isn't going to embarrass him, but I will say uh, you're going to want to buy up all of them before Second Service gets their hands on them because um, they'll clean him out. Um, so I want to pray that God uh, will hide, Jim, that God will hide you behind his cross this morning as you come up and join us. Father, thank you that uh, Jim could be here with us, and I pray that the hope of the message of your light, even in a dark time, um, would encourage everyone today um, as it did me uh, those years ago. And I thank you for his availability and for the gifts that you've given him, and I pray now that, um, that as we said, you would hide him behind your cross, um, that your son would be glorified today as we are encouraged. We pray these things over him and us in your son's name. Amen. Jim. Pastor, thank you, thank sir. You. Ah. Pastor, thank you so much for the wonderful, gracious privilege of being able to be here and be part of this congregation again today. I've had the honor of being here over the years on various occasions, and I am absolutely delighted and honored to be here and be part of this conversation with you again. As your pastor said, uh, so much of the reason I'm here is because of what we're here to talk about, but I'm also here because of that over there. And uh, when you have perfect grandchildren, don't laugh, 
Don't laugh at that. Inherited original sin, skipped them somehow. I don't know how, because it was certainly on their father, but it, lent, it skipped them. Don't know how that happened. But, uh, you know, then you just want to be around them, right? Every opportunity. And so, got to hang out together yesterday, got to watch them play basketball. Now I'm their agent. NBA, WNBA coming down the future. And so, thank you for the chance to be here and to be with them, especially. Wow, what a privilege. But I'm also here because there is an urgency to the mission that I believe I am here to share with you today. In fact, an urgency that I believe is unprecedented in American history. Wouldn't have said that six months ago. Have never said that until the research for the book the pastor mentioned and all that's inside all of that. So let me begin with a bit of a metaphor, if I could. As I'll do that, I'll ask you to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 12. I know that may not have been your devotional reading today. 1 Chronicles chapter 12. I'll give you a minute to find that. That's one of our two texts for today. A bit of a metaphor, if I could. March 11, 2001, underwater earthquake struck 45 miles off the coast of Japan. The tsunami waves that resulted from that underwater unseen earthquake submerged 217 square miles of Japan, destroyed 120,000 structures, damaged 760,000 structures, caused $235 billion in damage, and killed nearly 16,000 people. Tsunamis, you see, are caused by events you don't. You might have seen the news yesterday. There was a tsunami in the South Pacific, specifically striking the nation or the island of Tonga, but it came all the way to the Pacific coast of the United States, the waves as a result. In that case, it was an underwater volcano. Sometimes tsunamis are caused by mudslides, sometimes caused by asteroids, but 80% of the time, as was the case in Japan, it's an underwater earthquake that you don't see that causes the tsunami that you do. I believe American Christians are in the midst of, early stages of, a rising tsunami of cultural opposition we have not seen before. I believe there are four earthquakes, underwater earthquakes, causing this tsunami. But the good news is, unlike a physical tsunami that can't be reversed, it's always too soon to give up on God. And the main purpose of our conversation today is to help encourage you about what God is doing in the world. Didn't know the pastor was going to say that, but back to what he's doing in the awakenings of the day, what he could be doing in this day, what he wants to do in this day, ways God could be redeeming this time for the sake of your family and your church and your community and our culture. There is enormous hope, but we have to understand the earthquake so we know what to do about the tsunami. So in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, you turn to that and thought, wow, that's exciting. It starts with men who came to David at Ziklag in verse 1, and from there, it's just a telephone book, right? Some of you don't know what a telephone book is. It's a list of names, <laughs> all right? Long list of names. You get down to verse 23, you see the numbers of the divisions of the armed troops who came to David in Hebron. You get to verse 24, and it's the men of Judah, and Simeonites, and Levites, and on and on and on. A lot of Bible names you don't know how to pronounce. By the way, if you ever come across a Bible name you're not sure of, just say it with confidence. No one else knows either. You know, that's how pastors do that. But anyway, all these kind of Bible names and all of these, you get to Zadok, you see the Benjamites, you see all these different groups and, uh, that are armed men of valor. And you see all the numbers of, of these troops that are surrounding David at this early point in David's rule as king. Then you get to verse 32. 
And it says of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. Who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. My goal today is to have us join the men of Issachar. And then the other text you're familiar with. You don't have to look it up. It's 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. How can we celebrate and advance faith, hope, and love in a day like this? Pray with me, please. Father God, I pray that as we talk now through what's before us, that your spirit, as Pastor Chris has said, would be so powerfully at work in and through our minds and our lives that they won't hear me, that I won't hear me, Father, take away any word you haven't planned. Add any word you wish. Father, come and speak to us now. Help us to be men of Issachar. Help us to understand the times. Help us to know what we must therefore do. Help us to be encouraged by what you can do in and through us. And when this is time, when we're done today, Father, may the tsunami be a tsunami not of opposition, but a tsunami of opportunity. A tsunami not of anger, but a tsunami of grace. And may we join that tsunami to the glory of Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen. Men of Issachar, understanding the times. Four underwater earthquakes causing the tsunami of the day. I'll mention them as briefly as I can, quickly as I can. Uh, They're in chronological order, as it were, and they come together to create what I think we're facing today. The first would be the underwater earthquake that is a rejection of biblical truth. And the claim that such authority is itself outdated and in some ways intolerant today. Have you heard the statement, you have your truth, I have my truth? Well, 79% of Americans say, doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're tolerant of others. 79%. They say they are their own sole determiner of moral truth. Only 24% of Americans believe the Bible is literally the Word of God. The percentage who believe the Bible is myth has doubled in the last 20 years. 2016, Oxford University Dictionary named post-truth the word of the year. So where do we get this idea? Well, the long answer takes us back to Immanuel Kant and the Enlightenment and Nietzsche and Derrida and Foucault and the postmoderns. But the short version is this. Our culture, whether they've heard of Kant or not, is convinced that your mind interprets your senses and the result is your truth. Well, my mind isn't your mind. My senses aren't your senses. So, of course, my truth can't be your truth. Can't be such a thing as the truth. Just your truth, my truth. No right to force your beliefs on me. The Bible is therefore a diary of religious experiences. Tells us what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John might have experienced, but just like the Quran or the Book of Mormon or the Bhagavad Gita, I have no right to force it on you. And if you get that, we'll all get along. And if you believe the Bible is the objective word of God, then your belief is outdated. Now, of course, that fails the logic test. To say there is no such thing as truth is to make a truth claim, right? No such thing as truth, and we're sure of it. <laughs> Fails the practical test as well. If all truth is personal, individual, and subjective, does that make the Holocaust just Hitler's truth? And not 11 just Al-Qaeda's truth? But it is nonetheless conventional wisdom that biblical truth is outdated. Moves to a second earthquake, causes a second earthquake. Biblical morality is therefore Intolerant. Saw a survey last week, 69% of Americans 
say any consensual sexual relations between adults are acceptable of any kind. Percentage of Americans who believed in same-sex marriage back in 1988 was 11%. Now it's 67%, going up every year. And the younger you are, the more likely you are to be accepting. We've heard of the so-called sexual revolution. You go back to 1953 and Hugh Hefner and the advent of Playboy and 1960 and birth control so that sexual relations outside of marriage may not result in pregnancy. And then you get to 69 and the Stonewall riots and LGBTQ activism. I know there are children here, so I won't be specific. You know what I'm talking about, so-called sexual revolution. In the context of LGBTQ activism, it's four phases. The first is to normalize. We got that with Will and Grace and with Ellen and with so much popular culture. From there to legalize, we got that first in uh, Massachusetts and then 2015, Obergefell and legalization of same-sex marriage. Now we're in stigmatize those who disagree as homophobic, bigoted, prejudiced, narrow-minded, discriminatory. We're moving to criminalize those who disagree. The so-called Equality Act is an example. You've heard about that. It's already passed the House twice. It's before the Senate. President Biden promises to sign it if he can. The Equality Act would amend the 1964 Civil Rights Act to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. It specifically precludes you and me from any appeal to the 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act as part of our so-called discrimination. So to boil all of that down in practical terms, let's say, and again, I'll try to be careful. Let's say a transgender individual wished to gain employment on staff of your church, and you chose not to employ that person in part because of your beliefs relative to biblical sexual morality. And that person filed a lawsuit, and the Equality Act is law. And a judge issues an injunction. If you don't obey the injunction, somebody goes to jail. Billions of dollars are in question because of a lawsuit filed last year against Christian colleges in this country to try to remove all federal aid for student scholarships for those who so-called discriminate. 400 companies have signed on to the Equality Act. Every June in Pride Month, we see LGBTQ activism with children's cartoons and cereal boxes and continued attempts to normalize and to legalize and to stigmatize and criminalize. And all of that is because there's a conventional wisdom today that biblical morality is intolerant. Intolerant. Moves to a third. Aren't you glad you came today, huh? Move to a third earthquake very briefly. Those two you're familiar with, the third you're starting to hear about. And that is the claim that biblical witness is oppressive. And now we talk about critical theory and critical race theory. Very long conversation I'll do in about two minutes. Critical theory takes us back to the 20s and 30s in Germany, the so-called Frankfurt School, and Max Horkheimer, who coined it critical theory. It's a Marxist construct which says that life is experienced in classes. You have the prosperous classes, the unprosperous classes, the majority, the minority. According to critical theory, Marxism, don't mean that pejoratively, it's just historic fact. According to critical theory, if you are prosperous, you have or somebody has taken advantage of somebody else to get there, by definition. And now the majority class must be seen as oppressive of the minority class, whatever that class might be. That gets applied to race construct in its critical race theory. 
can be constructed relative to gender, intersectionality, all sorts of ways it gets used. But it basically is the claim that if you're in a majority class, you by definition, to get there, have been oppressive of some class along the way. It's essential Marxist construct. You've never had a slave, owned a slave, of course. Slavery would be abhorrent. It's absolute sin, obviously. But if you've ridden on a railroad that was built by slaves, you're experiencing the product of oppression. If you've been to the White House, built in part by slave labor, you understand. So, to our point here, if you're a Christian, you're part of the majority class. You're therefore, by definition, an oppressor of minority classes. If you happen to be a white Christian, you're even more so an oppressor. Was a day when the pastor was the parson, the person. Was a day when everybody went to church, or at least said they did, right? Anybody old enough to remember blue laws? Don't know why they were blue, but nonetheless couldn't do anything on Sunday till church was done. Couldn't go to a store and buy anything till Sunday at noon. Remember those days? Couldn't imagine a soccer practice on a Sunday back in the day, right? Well, now we're in a culture which says biblical truth is outdated. Biblical morality is intolerant. Biblical witness is oppressive. And then a fourth earthquake. We're starting to see this in the academy and on the coast. And it really encompasses the other three. Fourth earthquake says that Christian faith is dangerous to society. Fastest growing religious demographic in America are those who have no religion. Gallup last year announced that the percentage of Americans with any relationship with the church, synagogue, or mosque has fallen below 50% for the first time in American history. Well, what's behind that? In part, there's a rising secular ideology. It's been called a replacement ideology. Robert George at Princeton had a massive article about it just last week. It's a secular religion which says that personal authenticity is the path to flourishing. And if you disagree, your religion is not just outdated or intolerant or oppressive. It is dangerous to society. We now know that religion flies planes into buildings and causes 9-11s. We now know that religion causes clergy abuse scandals and spends money on buildings instead of people in heaven instead of earth. We now know that religion is an outdated, superstitious, mythological, leftover construct. We now know, as Christopher Hitchens said in his best-selling book, God is Not Great, subtitle, How Religion Poisons Everything. Richard Dawkins says, religion is a virus in the software of humanity that must be expunged. A growing movement to claim that our religion is homophobic, bigoted, prejudiced, narrow-minded, discriminatory, and dangerous. That we are to be likened to the KKK, and that by standing for biblical morality, we are as oppressive as if we were burning crosses in front yards. That was said in a Senate hearing last year. And all of that together is causing a rising tide of opposition we in America have never faced before. We just haven't. We've never before been called dangerous and oppressive and intolerant and outdated, but that's where we are. Well, let's talk about some good news, all right? <laughs> Aren't you glad you came today, right? Fifth anniversary celebration, then I come in to do this. Well, let's talk about the good news here. God is still on his throne. God's not surprised by this. God's not taking notes on this sermon. God's not up in heaven getting scared right now. None of this is bothering our King of kings and Lord of lords. God redeems all that he allows. 
How can we join him in redeeming these days and this time? Well, how can we be faith, hope, and love? How can we have redemptive faith, redemptive hope, redemptive love? How can we make a difference in our families and in our influence and in our church and our culture? Faith, hope, and love. Let's talk about redemptive faith for a moment. When Jesus began his ministry, remember his first announcement? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember Jesus' prayer. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Remember Jesus' statement. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That was his prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. When he comes back, Revelation says his name will be King of kings and Lord of lords. All through the Bible, God is a king. Not a symbolic kingdom like we see in Great Britain and other places. A medieval kingdom. If you were in Henry VIII's kingdom, you'd be sitting in his chairs, wearing his clothes, breathing his air. That kind of king. King on Monday, not just Sunday. King of what you do in private, not just public. King of the money you keep, not just what you give. A king. God's a king. In our culture, God's a hobby. In our culture, isn't that true? We separate Sunday and Monday and spiritual and secular and religion in the real world. In our culture, if your Sunday hobby is church, that's fine. If my Sunday hobby is golf, that's not on a day like today. But nonetheless, that's fine. No right to force your hobby on me. No right to force your beliefs on me. God is a hobby. How tempting that is to segment our lives. The God part, the rest of us. How tempting it is to go to church on Sunday so God will bless us on Monday. How tempting it is to start the day with a quiet time so God will bless the day. It goes back to Greco-Roman religion. Transactional relationships with these gods. Place an offering on the altar so the God will bless your crops. You go into war, so you sacrifice to Mars. You need wisdom, so you sacrifice to Athena. You do what you're supposed to do, the God will do what the God's supposed to do. Jesus says, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, not just Sunday. The Bible says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, not just your Sunday mornings. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, not just my quiet time. In the Bible, God's a king. If you'd like to be part of the redemptive tsunami as opposed to the destructive tsunami, if you'd like to be a part of what God is doing in the world today, if you'd like to be on the right side of history and the right side of eternity, then start every day by making God your king. Every single day. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you're the child of God, you'll always be the child of God. You're in His hand, no one can take you from His hand. That's settled. Can't go back and not be His child. Ryan can't go back and not be our son. He might wish he could, but he can't. Once you're born as the child of God, you'll always be the child of God. But making him your king is a daily decision. I can't give God tomorrow because it doesn't exist. So every single day, you start the day by climbing off the throne and enthroning him intentionally. Ephesians 5.18 commands us to be filled with the Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit. So let me urge you to start every day by getting alone with God. Ask the Lord to reveal anything you need to confess. Confess it. Literally, intentionally say, Jesus, I crown you my king today. I submit to your spirit today. Ask the spirit to fill you and control you. Walk through the day. God is your king. You have a challenge, you pray about it. An opposition, you pray about it. Opportunity, you pray. Temptation, you pray. If you fall to the temptation, you ask God to forgive you and cleanse you and restore you and plug you back in. Walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Walk with God as your king. And you'll join the spiritual tsunami as opposed to the satanic tsunami. You'll join what God is doing instead of what the enemy is doing. You'll be on the right side of history and eternity. 
Make God your king. Have that kind of redemptive faith. Redemptive hope. Always too soon to give up on God. Romans 8.18, I don't consider the present sufferings worth comparing to the glory to be revealed. So glad your pastor mentioned what God's doing in the world. Fifth great awakening. Been four awakenings in American history. 1734, 1792, 1858, 1904, and 5. I assume we talked about all those when we were together back those days. Every one of them preceded by desperation. Fifth great awakening happening in the world today. You know that more Muslims have come to Christ in the last 15 years than the previous 15 centuries? Many of them after seeing visions and dreams of Jesus. Do you know that more people are coming to Christ right now in sub-Saharan Africa? 28,000 a day, more than ever before. You know that Brazil will be one-third to one-half born-again Christian by the year 2030? They say South Korea already is one-third to one-half born-again Christian. I have a good friend who serves in the Middle East. He thinks that more Jews have come to Christ in the last 20 years than the previous 20 centuries. Many of them in a Messianic Jewish kind of underground movement. What God is doing in the world today. Fifth great awakening. Let's join it. Let's decide every single day to pray for that awakening here. Let's decide every single day to pray for that awakening here. Let's make that our hope. Let's make our faith in God as king by submitting to the spirit. Let's make our hope in awakening because we so desperately need that transformation in our culture before it is too late. And then let's claim redemptive love. Because there abides faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Ephesians 4.15, I believe, should be the mantra of Christians in this culture. Speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. Some speak the truth, some love, few do both. Speaking the truth in love. I have to say to you what I say to myself quite often. Those who are part of this rising tide of opposition to Christian faith are not the enemy. They are not the bad guys. They are the victims. Thank you for that. Thank you. No, let's do this. Excellent. Exactly right. When my, our sons were growing up, Janet would quite often say, lost people act like lost people. So did I. So did you. The Bible says a natural man doesn't understand the things of God. They are spiritually discerned. Those who are convinced the truth is personal, individual, and subjective, of course would believe the Bible is therefore outdated. If you are convinced that sexual freedom and authenticity is the path to flourishing. Of course you would consider biblical morality to be intolerant. Of course you would. If you're convinced that some group is an oppressor by definition, of course you'd be opposed to that. If you believe that a movement was dangerous, of course you'd want to replace it. As an example, I will tell you that white supremacy is demonic. The idea that I am superior to somebody else based on my skin is sin. If the KKK wanted to claim religious freedom protection to bring crosses in front yards, you and I would both stand against that. That is exactly how so many in the culture see us. They're deceived. The enemy is not them. It's the ones who deceive them. The enemy is Satan. The enemy is the enemy who is behind this. So, you and I are to speak the truth in love and humility and grace. 
We are beggars helping beggars find bread. I am just as tempted in heterosexual terms as anybody else might be in homosexual terms. We are all broken people sexually, right? We are all sinners who have come short of the glory of God. I am in no sense better than anybody who is opposed to what I'm talking about today and is part of this rising tsunami. We are all loved equally by the one who died for us. And so it's speaking the truth in love. It's using your influence to share the good news of God's love. It's every day a personal Acts 1-8 strategy. God, what would you do with me through my Jerusalem and Judea Samaria and the ends of the earth? God, what are my gifts? What are my, my abilities? What influence have you entrusted to me? And how can I speak the truth in love there? How can I communicate your grace there? How can I be your salt and your light? It doesn't take much salt. It doesn't take much light to be transformational. God, every single day, enable me, empower me, encourage me, equip me to speak the truth in love. And if I'll do that, if you'll do that, if we'll start every day by making Christ our King and submitting to His Spirit, if we will pray and work every day for spiritual awakening starting with me, if we will every single day speak the truth in love, God will make us part of the right tsunami, the spiritual tsunami, the awakening our culture needs so desperately. The great evangelist Gypsy Smith was asked how revival starts. He said, take a piece of chalk, go home, draw a circle around yourself. Get on your knees. Pray till everything inside that circle is right with God. And revival will be upon us. Let me invite you to take some chalk home with you today. God redeems all the allows. God is on his throne. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He knows what's happening. And if he would use the desperation of this hour to call his people back to himself as king, to pray for, to seek, to work for the kind of awakening we so desperately need by speaking the truth in love, then he will redeem this hour to his glory and our good if we'll join that tsunami. Let me close with one more example of that tsunami at work, and then we'll take a moment to pray together. I've gotten to go to Cuba 10 times over the years. I think everybody ought to go to Cuba. <laughs> Just like I think every Christian should go to, the, go to Israel, go to the Holy Land. I love leading study tours to Israel. If you go to Cuba, you see the book of Acts still in action. See, it's still at work. I'm reminded right now of being here with Ryan. Uh, my pastor in Cuba, my pastor friend, Pastor Carlos, many ways the Apostle Paul of Cuba. Pastors a small church in Cespedes, a town in the center of Cuba. Redeemer Baptist Church that last year shared the gospel with 76,000 people through that one church. One of the most powerful churches I've ever known. Well, back years ago, when Ryan was undergoing cancer surgery, got a call, Baylor University Medical Center, cell phone, Pastor Carlos. Don't know how he got a hold of a cell phone back in those days. They have them now, but not back then in Cuba. To tell me that his church was praying for Ryan. And I thanked him for that. I thought he probably meant what we would mean by that, and he put it on a prayer list, and they sent the word around as they would, and people were praying. He made clear to the interpreter, no, his church was praying for Ryan. In the back of the sanctuary, they have a map of the world, and they have a prayer altar there, and his church was praying for Ryan. And Ryan as well. Sorry. 
I love them. And I love that pastor. And what God is doing there. But just one example of what the Holy Spirit is doing. Some years ago in Cespedes, massive problems. Witchcraft on the rise. Santeria. Dead bodies paraded through the streets. Attacks on churches and Christians. Drug gangs. Government oppression. They didn't know what to do. God led them to speak his word over the city. Their bell tower in that church is the tallest structure in the town of Cespedes. And so one morning at dawn, two church members climbed up to that bell tower. One opened her Bible to Genesis chapter 1 and began reading the word of God through the open windows of that bell tower over the city of Cespedes while the second prayed for her. They did that for an hour. Then a second couple went up to the bell tower. One read the word of God for an hour over the city of Cespedes while the other prayed. Then another team, then another, then another, until they had read the Bible over the town of Cespedes. And the drug traffickers left. And the Santeria went away. And the witchcraft stopped. And the attacks stopped. And awakening began to sweep the town. Now, you won't read this in our press, but there's a day of the year now where in every major town in Cuba, together, they read the Bible over the communist island of Cuba. And in the last 10 years, one million Cubans have come to faith in Christ. God is on his throne. The Spirit is on the march. Let's join him. There is a tsunami in our future. It is either a tsunami of opposition that will lead to consequence of tragic significance and the judgment of God. Or it is a tsunami of opportunity and awakening and God's best for our nation. And we get to choose. Let's pray. Would you take this moment, just you and God, and choose? Would you in your own heart and your own words say, Lord, I want to be part of what you are doing, not what the enemy is doing. I make you my king today. Fill me with your spirit. Empower me. Lord, I will pray and work for awakening every day. Beginning in my circle. Lord, I will speak the truth in love everywhere I have influence. By your glory and your grace. Would you make those your prayers, your commitments to your Father right now? Father God, I am overwhelmed with gratitude for the privilege of being here today on this historic day with my family that I love. To be able to share with this family your love. May we be, because of today, even more empowered, even more in love with you and with Tyler. To the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen.